Welcome to the Idle Book Club for June 2016. I'm Chris Remo. I'm Sarah Argadale. And this month we are reading and discussing Mr. Fox by Helen Oyeyemi, which was released in 2011. Mr. Fox is a novel, both a novel and I would say a short story collection. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a series of stories that are connected through two and then eventually three characters, um, St. John Fox, his wife Daphne, and this woman, Mary Fox, F-O-X-E, who may or may not be a figment of their imagination, a muse, a real person. That's something that we can discuss for mm-hmm. this episode. But essentially, this book is several different reimaginings of fairy tales, specifically the Bluebeard fairy tale. Or are you familiar with that at all, Chris? I I, I think I was glancingly familiar with it. And mm-hmm. since reading this, I've read... A, I, I went and read a bunch about it, as well as the, the Reynardine the Fox. Right. Yeah. Which it's essentially the story of a man who marries a woman and has a history of murdering his wives and the the particular heroine of a story manages to get out of being murdered by her husband through some kind of trickery but there lots of cultures have this kind of story and this novel is an examination of of that trope in fairy tales and how it relates to I think in fiction more broadly what do you mean? I mean, I think the, I think the, so I guess not, not being familiar with those fairy tales in great depth before I read the book, I received it more as an examination of those, of, of tropes of women, of violence against women in fiction more generally. And now having, you know, I haven't read a bunch of those stories firsthand, but having read a bunch about them, um, it feels more like that was the launching point for, Oh yeah, you me to think about broader themes right. beyond just those tales. Right. We should say that the male character in this novel, St. John Fox, is himself an author who has I guess he's like a crime novelist. Yeah, it's not really clear. Pulpy mm-hmm. violent fiction, yeah. Um, in the pre-World War II era. Mm-hmm. And he has a habit of killing off his female characters and particularly gruesome fashion and Mary Fox is a figment of his imagination. At least that's how she's initially portrayed, um, come to life to kind of chastise him for the way that he treats women. The only relationship that he can imagine between men and women is, is a violent one. And she's kind of there to encourage him to try to think beyond the violence. And then, so that's the main thread of the novel. And then interspersed in that thread are these different short stories that um, will often have Fox imagery in them, sometimes just explicitly characters named Fox that, that deal with relationships between men and women, like reimaginings of this Bluebeard fairy tale. Or sometimes stories that are that seem to be in no way reimaginings of that fairy tale. The, some of the stories get pretty pretty far beyond that structure. Are you talking about the, my daughter is a racist? Sorry. My daughter, the racist. My yeah. That, the that's, racist. that is one example. Yeah. That sure. was such a weird section to me because it's clearly set in our modern day. 
I imagine it's meant to be in a country like Iraq or Afghanistan. And when I was reading that, I momentarily forgot that the rest of the book is supposed to be set in the 1930s. It's supposed to be taking place before World War II. And I, I wonder what her thought process of putting that modern, essentially like a modern short well, story. Well, there was at least one other story set in the modern era as well. Was there? Yeah, earlier on, yeah. Mm. Oh, I guess the um, the the story where Mary Fox is a model. Mm-hmm. I I kind of imagine that as being in the the present day. Although who knows? It um it's it was really hard to tell sometimes just because there's very little historical evidence offered throughout the book, um, which is why it was really easy for me to forget. Right. That it's meant to be a pre-war novel um, setting. Uh, so this is such a, this is so um, inconsequential relative to the whole book, but I just want to bring it up because I thought it was interesting. I think that St. John, when, when used as a given name, I think is generally pronounced Sinjin. Oh. I, I was, yeah, I was reading about this, especially in British English. And obviously the, these characters are generally portrayed as being American in the book, but the author Oyeyumi is British and I wonder, this has, again, little to no consequence, I think, on the actual substance of the story. But I start after I learned this, which was, I think, about halfway through the novel, when I just looked it up out of curiosity, I started reading it as Sinjin mm-hmm. rather than St. John, which actually sort of improved the flow of the book for me because St. John as a given name feels so odd and constructed. Yeah, I should have but, known But apparently that. it is sort of an archaic... Well, um, so I, I should have known that because the um, one of the characters in, um, oh my God, oh, Jane Eyre's name is Sinjin, and it's obviously spelled the same way, but I didn't make that connection. So uh, go me. I wonder if that was... How did you know it was pronounced that way? Because I've heard other people, uh-huh. but I just okay. wasn't really thinking right. about that. Um, right. Yeah, but you're right about it. It's supposed to be taking place in England or... America. Well, I, was also I mean, never he's clear. a he's a Manhattan-based writer. Mm-hmm. The character, the character of Sinjin Fox. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but Mary Fox is British. Well, she's portrayed differently at different points in the novel, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there are times where she's um, towards the end of the book when um, when uh, uh, Daphne actually spends an extended period of time with her. She says she sounds even more New England than she does, and I don't know if that's you know a put on or what because then a Later on at the restaurant, she slips into a British accent. Um, it's probably immaterial, right? I mean, she's largely a seemingly a not a real person. Right? I mean, she's she exists in these characters' heads more than anything else, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. I think we should maybe pull back a little and just sure. talk about what we generally thought of mm-hmm. this book. Sure. Um, I think it's worth noting that this is Helen Oyemi's fourth novel. And she wrote her first novel when she was 19. Yeah. Um, and this one she wrote when she, I believe, was in her late 20s. So she's a very young author. And to me, this kind of reads like the book written by a writer who is still working on their craft. Um, after I finished Mr. Fox, I went and I read her most recent book, um, which is a collection of short stories. I mean, more explicitly a collection of short stories called What is Not Yours is Not Yours. And she definitely 
has a lot of the same fixations in that short story collection that are present in Mr. Fox, most notably the the kind of fairy tale fixations, um, but just much like more deftly handled in the more recent novel. So I imagine that's just something that's true as authors develop more and more. Um, Not that I thought that this book was bad, but I definitely saw the strings in it more so than in her her most recent work yeah i i was left you will know this because i essentially was trying to procrastinate recording this podcast because i'm i felt i feel so i felt and feel so unprepared to speak about it with confidence um because when i was reading it i really struggled to come to conclusions about it um and i i still struggle in that regard part of Part of the reason for, for that, for my lack of confidence in discussing this novel, is because of my reaction to that fairy tale style, the sort of um, fabulistic um, tone that uh, carries throughout it. I find that I have sort of an involuntary, involuntarily skeptical reaction to modern writing that is written as though it were mythology. There's something about the intentional stiltedness of fable-like or mythological writing that I find um, makes me wary because it feels as though it is trying to communicate timeless truths or some kind of um, immaterial... like sense in the ether, mm-hmm. right? Except that I know it was written by just a person who's just here on earth living, in this case, younger than I am, um, just writing it down, which is not, which isn't to uh, uh, to discount the wisdom of people who are younger than I am or the ability or anything else, obviously not. Um, but there's something about the um, attempt to, on a prose level, associate itself with more um, ancient or timeless texts that makes it hard for me to situate myself in relation to it. Does that, does that make any sense at all? Yeah. It may not. (laughs) No, I, I don't think I necessarily share your reservations, but yeah. It's not really a rational reaction. Sure. Uh, But I think something that I kind of agree with in, in that's present in this novel is that because she doesn't, fully execute on her attempt to bring fairy tales into the modern era. Like she gets as far as saying that men uh, perpetuate violence against women in some way, but then she doesn't really go much farther than that. And to to me, it's kind of like, okay, yeah, that's the the obvious um, comment to make about the world that we live in that there's still this violence that occurs between the sexes but but you know I, now you need to go one step further and kind of bring that into modern day and she doesn't fully accomplish that at least in in my mind so i wonder if if she had been a little bit more successful in that way if you would have been maybe less bothered by this attempt to to both straddle i guess the past and in the present Almost is what is. Um, it's possible. I think my reaction might be more fundamental than that because I, um, I actually really enjoyed. I would say the last third of the book. I mean, I enjoyed a lot of it throughout, but I would say I increasingly enjoyed the book 
especially during the longer segments that did not that didn't conduct themselves as much in that mythological mode. Um, I really, really, really enjoyed, for instance, the uh, segment in which Daphne Fox and Mary Fox share dinner together. And mm-hmm. there was some, I, most of the time when the book engaged in longer form sections about human characters, I found myself engaged and I found myself just simply less engaged when the book was attempting to recreate mythology. And I think probably in my case, that would be true irrespective of the specific point it was trying to make. I, I'm not sure about that, but that's my suspicion. Yeah. Um, and I don't, and I, it's hard for me to take that as a, as a strike against the book because it makes me think that's just a, a predilection in, in my own head. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, that was, that's the reason I was so reticent to talk about this book is because I just don't know what to make of my own reaction to those parts of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's like two different novels essentially right there's the story of Daphne Mary and Sinjin and then the fairy tales and some of the fairy tales land and some of them don't land but and some of them are barely even fairy tales right like my daughter the racist is basically a, a, right. Just a story right which is and why a, I was a really good story I yeah thought. I was beautifully written but I, I didn't really understand but most out of place out of mm-hmm. all of the sections probably. right yeah. um but I definitely wish that Daphne, that whole thread, that that had been just the entire novel because it it felt like the the most, not well-developed because I I wish that there was more to it, but the the most interesting thread, right? Because essentially the setup is that the the writer, the, the husband, Sinjin, has this writing career where he murders women and and he has this very fraught relationship with his wife maybe not fraught but it it definitely seemed to be lacking respect towards her um there is this quote that i noted uh about sinjin describing daphne where he says I fixed her early. I told her in heartfelt tones that one of the reasons I love her is because she never complains. So now, of course, she doesn't dare complain, right? Which I think is a a great little summary of the relationship that they have where he kind of lacks this fundamental respect for her um, and constrains her in that way where they're married to each other, but it's not very clear that he particularly loves her. Um, I don't really know how she is meant to feel about him because she is not as developed as the other characters. But anyway, so you have this setup, this fractured marriage between him and between Sinjin and Daphne. And then Mary Fox appears, who is this, again, like imaginary character, a real woman. You know, the book doesn't explicitly tell you what is the case. Um, But Daphne at first believes her to be a real woman. I mean, she thinks that her husband is having an affair with this person. Um, and I thought that was initially a really interesting, like, discussion of male fantasy. Like, Sinjin is dissatisfied in his own relationship, so he makes up this other woman who 
fulfills all of these qualities that it seems like his wife is lacking and then like goes to his fantasy woman instead of trying to work on the real life relationship that he has with his wife and that's like the the initial setup right and then Daphne also becomes part of the Mary Fox fantasy um or possibly Mary Fox the real person and I mean she's clearly at the very least, a magical person because she appears and disappears at will. Mm-hmm, but I mean, only I to think... these characters, right? Does... Yeah, that's true. I suppose. I mean, what would be the what would be the scenario in which she is a like real person, so to speak? Well, I I guess I, I'm saying that because the the book is written in the semi fantastical style. I don't know if the things that are happening on the page we are meant to take literally, or if it's kind of an exaggerated story so when they're talking about mary appearing and and disappearing i don't know if that's literally what is happening where she's like blinking in and out of existence or if that's just kind of magical way to describe this woman coming and going Mm -hmm. in in their lives um so you know it could go either way for me um it's probably that she actually is just a, a magical creature but i think the book leaves open this possible interpretation that she is a real human being. Um, it's just presented in this fantastical mm-hmm. way. Sure. Um, so what do you, so what do you make of uh, Mary's relationship to Sinjin in that she is obviously, she serves as a um, sort of a muse character or, you know, some sort of fantasy for him. Um, but she also challenges, I mean, her, you know, early on in the book, I mean, she challenges him and is a sort of a stern voice in relation to his, uh, his own unchallenged writerly instincts. Um, what was odd, I thought, is that she sort of gets progressively more passive over the course of the book in some way. Um, it's not, not really, not in, not in a direct line. But earlier on, she seems to be a much more, um, she seems to exhibit more diverse behaviors and motivations than she does towards the end of the book when, like, there's a point, uh, at which she, she says, um, to Sinjin, I would like to have breakfast with you and I would like to have you defer a little to my tastes and habits. At present, I have none because you haven't given me any. I'd like to go to dinner parties with you and play charades. I'd like to have friends lend me books and tell me secrets. I would like to have nothing to do with you for hours on end and then come back and find you, come back with things I've thought and found out all on my own, on my own, not through you. I'd like not to disappear when you're not thinking about me. So I found myself wondering what that means when that occurs probably, I don't know, 150 pages after she does seem to have her own... uh, sort of opinions and thoughts and and motivations with respect to Sinjin and his work. Um, I don't really know what to think of that or what to make of it. And then when she spends all that time with Daphne, she's even, I mean, she's basically a child at that point. I mean, she's so um, sort of flighty and um, seemingly, uh, um, I don't know, like passive sort of, I, I don't know. I don't really know exactly what I'm saying, but I, I just wasn't really sure what to think about any of that. I guess it depends on how you interpret Mary. So if you interpret Mary as a figment of Sinjin's imagination, I think that it it says something interesting about him 
because initially he's imagining this like boisterous uh woman who i think like flashes him when she she first appears right doesn't she maybe not flashes him but she's she definitely like provocatively acts towards him in this very like sensual kind of way and then through the progression of the the story she becomes more and more maybe like daphne is what we're meant to see so then what does that say about sinjin that initially his fantasy woman that he's escaping to is this larger than life figure who is trying to challenge him as a a a writer um maybe in ways that he feels he is not getting from the real world so he has to cook up this fantasy Mm -hmm. woman to challenge him in those ways and then the fantasy becomes more and more like the kind of boring domestic life that he actually has so that's one way to look at it right if you believe that this is his fantasy and then like he is the one who is changing the script i wonder also if there's a connection between daphne and mary because the the most interesting aspect of this book i think is that when mary and daphne finally meet and Mary encourages Daphne to also become a writer. Um, that to me was like the most important part mm-hmm. of, of the I, book. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Yeah. And so at that point, it's like Mary moves from being Sinjin's muse to being um, Daphne's muse almost. Mm-hmm. Or possibly a collective muse. Or right. Something. But but okay, so if you think of that and then you think of like the description that you just read, which to me, like you described it as, as seeming more passive passive, but to me, that description seems like a woman in a relationship wanting to to have Right. I didn't mean passive in intent, I meant passive in ability. Mm-hmm. Right. Like whereas whereas the she is expressing her frustration with this forced passivity. Mm-hmm. Whereas earlier on it does seem she's able to actually exhibit like forcible i mean she doesn't have to ask his permission early on to challenge him in these ways she just does Mm -hmm. whereas later on she's saying i wish you'd give me other thoughts that i i mean i certainly get the sense reading it that she does have a personality when she's on her own and she does because she she seems to choose very intentionally in some cases anyway when to appear and when not to Um, i mean to me all of this is definitely evidence that she is not a sort of quote unquote real person portrayed in a surrealistic way. I mean, I, she definitely seems to be some, there's definitely a magical realism Mm -hmm. kind of thing going on. I mean, she seems to be willed into existence by first by Sinjin and then increasingly also by Daphne um, to the point that other people also are fully capable of interacting with her, but she still seems like a, she still seems like an otherworldly presence. Even when she's just sitting at the table, she's like, sort of becomes fascinated by this weird interaction she's having with these men at another table in a way that seems like a normal person would, this wouldn't be a surprising fun thing. It would just, you know, it it seems as though she's experiencing that for the first time. And it's like astonishing to her, you know, she's probably never been in like the quote real world in that way before, because she isn't of the real world. Um, Like it seems even that her past and her history is, is subjective to the, situation she's conjured into at any time you know i don't know i mean maybe maybe she she appears more childish and naive in daphne's evocation of her because she 
is in fact a younger relative to Daphne. Like she, Daphne has less of a relationship with her. And so there is in fact less complexity in the way she is realized to Daphne's eyes. I don't know. I'm making this all up as I talk. Mm-hmm. I don't really know what I'm even saying, but, <laughs> but I, I don't know. I, I, I found a lot of this stuff really interesting and I, there were some, there were some elements of the, uh, so a thing I, I thought was really fascinating and evocative and I, don't really know if I, I can't really figure out if the, if this was ever returned to, but you know, when the model meets the Sinjin character on a plane, which again feels is sort of odd because that does feel out of time with the rest of the book. Um, I found the image of her um, visions of a, a dead Daphne in the bathroom to be extremely potent and I thought that was very interesting. And and that kind of weird, inexplicable uh, sort of cosmic connection thing kind of worked for me in a way that some of the mythology stuff didn't quite as much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of wanted that to be explored more mm-hmm. because it, it was just the, the funny thing about that story is that it sort of ended up uh, with Daphne serving as the... Um, otherworldly presence, you She's know, a ghost. Yeah, I, I don't know. That was that was just. I thought that was an interesting twist, and mm-hmm. and uh, and sort of in equal parts comforting and, and extremely disturbing. You know, the 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 fact that this woman has this vision of of Daphne that occurs before she ever has any context to place who that woman is or what it could possibly mean. I don't know. I, well, not only that, but it, that that story ends with the that iteration of Mary Fox attempting suicide and being saved by mm-hmm. Daphne's right. ghost. Yeah, um, which so I, like I actually kept expecting that to recur mm-hmm. somehow towards the end of the book. Once we start, started spending a huge amount of time with uh, Daphne and Mary Fox and Sinjin in this sort of weird triangle, I kept expecting that to recur somehow. I kept expecting. Daphne to kill herself or like I, I not necessarily literally that but I I kept expecting there to be an echo of that earlier story and I'm probably I'm glad there wasn't I think but right but I kept thinking that was going to come back somehow because it felt so potent and something that I didn't really pick up on but um read in a couple of reviews of this book is that some people interpret this as this book is being written as an exchange between um Mary Fox and and Sinjin, where it's not Sinjin who is writing all of these short stories. Like sometimes it's him, and sometimes it's Mary Fox, or sometimes mm-hmm. it's even possibly maybe Daphne writing some of these. Um, so and, and it's up to you to kind of decide which short stories you think belong to which writer. Maybe they're all written by Sinjin, but like thinking of it in that way, and then having this story where the relationship between the dead Daphne and um, Mary Fox take is like almost more important than their relationship with Sinjin. It's interesting to think about like, okay, who possibly is writing that and what does that mean? Yeah. I found that, that to be a very uncompelling (laughs) trick. You know what I mean? Like, because very early in the novel, you, there is this explicit suggestion that Mary Fox and Sinjin Fox are going to sort of take turns creating these stories, right? I mean, Mary ex- 
puts that forth as a, as this particular structure that is going to occur. And I found I found my efforts to try and follow that thread to just be stymied to the point that I I didn't I, I kind of just stopped finding it interesting and 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 I didn't it didn't. It was not very illuminating to me, I guess, and that that might be I, may, I might just be a philistine or something. I don't like part of again part of my reticence in talking about this book is that I just don't I, I'm not very confident in my reactions to it, and so I'm similarly not confident in this. But I I I think part of the reason I I enjoyed I enjoyed the book more as I went on is because I sort of stopped I sort of dropped the puzzle box aspect of it and mm-hmm. and you know just sort of tried to take each story as a as something that might have some like loose thematic resonance with the other pieces but wasn't part of some complex like series that I was trying to to put together or unlock yeah um, yeah um i mean one of the the first short stories that happen is that um ex- the the letter exchange that occurs mm-hmm. between mary and sinjin and we're we're at the end of, of that uh that avatar of mary goes to confront that version of sinjin and she's greeted by this woman at his apartment and she mm-hmm. um and in this reality sinjin is also, also an author and um mary accuses this woman who she meets of actually being right. the real sinjin who is pretending to be this male author and it's never confirmed in any way but this happens um in the first part of the book and and i was kind of expecting that to result in something Uh, and it kind of does because at the end you know daphne also decides to be a writer and tell her own stories of women so i i guess in a way kind of circles back to that but i i was expecting there to be more of a follow-through and that's kind of like what i was saying earlier about this book where it has a lot of ideas about these relationships between men and women and how we and how they they write differently but doesn't really like definitively come to any conclusions in in a very frustrating way because you can see the the threads of these interesting conclusions that like maybe you could arrive at if you just tease them out a little bit more and i wish that she, that's exactly what she mm. had done yeah um uh so this book I'm sure this is true for a lot of people who are reading it. Um, it was definitely for me, and I think for you as well, difficult to really get invested in um, initially. Like for me, I I wasn't fully committed to this book until the 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 short story about the the two boys who are going to this finishing school. Ab- oh yeah, about learning how to be. Yeah, we haven't talked about that one. Yeah, yet. I think that. In addition to the the ending with Daphne, it um, was my favorite oh, part. Interesting. What of, did you What did you like about that story? I just like the imagery of it. So the setup is that in this reality, men or young boys really go to finishing schools to learn how to be proper husbands in this really stereotypical I- idea, and it's it's like fascinating because it's one of the few instances where. Like the book starts to acknowledge the fact that yes, men historically visit this violence on women, but but like in some way it's not entirely the fault of individual men. Almost, it's like it it that section is starting to acknowledge that 
men are put into this role by society at large and that's what what contributes to Mm -hmm. to all of this that it's not just like inherently men are going to be violent towards women but there's there are other forces working in the background to create that dynamic um and it it also just had uh a good little so that that's the the story where um the the madam of this finishing school is put at odds with the kind of I guess villain um, who is literally just called um, Renardine, mm-hmm. um, who these two boys find locked at the bottom of a lake and they release without really knowing who this man is and and this iteration of Renardine goes on a murder spree and just kills all of these women and it's revealed that the madam had been locking him there to try to like prevent him from doing exactly that. So I don't know. It's just like an interesting comparison, right? Where here's this finishing school where like this example of male violence is trapped and is released by these two young boys who are there who are at this finishing school to kind of have that violence be like educated out of them almost and they end up releasing it anyway into the Mm. world so like see there are all these like possibilities that's that's funny because i don't i think i didn't pick up a lot of that because i was so distracted by the style in which it was told (laughs) right like the idea that there's this guy who's trapped at the bottom of a lake and he's Alive, And I understand that it's supposed to be a sort of fairy tale kind of thing, but it's for some reason, I just have a really difficult time taking seriously, simultaneously, the notion of a fairy tale with like new fiction that's written in basically our world. Um, I just, I just, it, it like distracts my brain in a way that doesn't allow me to drill down to the larger point that you are, that, that you're illustrating that. You, as you say, it seems totally correct and it is, you know, seems like a completely good observation about that story. But I found myself so unable to uh, to parse it in that way because the um, the intentionally artificial nature of the way that that's the way that story is presented um, puts like a block in my brain or something. It's mm-hmm. very odd. I don't know. But, but yeah, I mean, you're you're right. There's like. Thinking of it in that light, it's a very powerful image that this uh, sort of um, super, this like id, this violent male id is literally repressed at the bottom Mm -hmm. of this lake in the middle of this school and these children unwittingly release it. I mean, yeah, that that is a powerful image. I found myself totally unable to, <laughs> like, you know, apprehend it in that way in, the, it's your in real time. M- male id that's preventing yeah, you yeah, from I, it's not letting me come to, <laughs> come to terms with these truths. Um, I just want to read a paragraph from that section because I I absolutely loved it. Uh, okay. And this I I think doesn't really have that magical realism that you were so bothered by, but we'll see. Maybe we can talk about it. So this is this comes right after the boys release Renardine. By the middle of the next day, Madame de Silencio knew that Renardine had been released. This wasn't due to any psychic connection. It was due to the local news. The thing about Renardine, Madame de Silencio explains, is that he is a woman killer. He doesn't do it joylessly. Oh no, he does it with a dolor and scowling. Women upset him. He said it to me once that he hates their ways, 
that from the moment he encounters one of them, he is forced to play a role, and he won't stand for it. Paranoid nonsense. The night he was released, he passed through Greenwich, killing and killing. Forty women gone between 2.30 and 4 a.m., and he went quickly on throughout the country, doing more. Worse, in the days that followed, other killers, killers of children and aged parents and love rivals and husbands, they too swelled the murder rate as if inspired. A bad week in time, an awful week of red shivers, the streets empty of civilians and full of police. So I think that that is a horrifying and beautiful passage, right? Mm -hmm. And like, if I could defend her choice to write in this magical realist style, I would say it makes it easier to stomach this scenario, which is a very real life scenario, right? Like this, this kind of violence, but because it's present- well, sort of. I mean, serial killers are not common, or well, okay, so not like this the serial killing nature explicitly, but just this idea of men who like fundamentally right. But what I guess I'm saying is the scenario itself is not realistic at all. The no. scenario is trying to make a point, right? That that in, that. Institutional violence in society is like a specifically against women is is a real problem and is like a, a horrible and frequently unaddressed issue. Right, and I think that putting it in this this kind of description versus like a very realistic description of it makes it so okay. Let let me let me try this argument. Mm-hmm. So if if Mary Fox is criticizing. Sinjin for constantly killing women in his stories and he is supposed to be a successful author there's also this kind of implicit criticism of the readers of books like that who are finding some kind of thrill in reading these stories in which women are murdered and then you have a passage like this that is a a, a, like entertaining paragraph of a a man literally going around and and murdering women that I have just said that I really enjoyed reading. And it's kind of like Oyemi is finding a way to also implicate readers of these stories, right? Where like humans love fairy tales, even though in fairy tales, women are, especially in the ones that she pulls from, right? Women are being uh, brutalized in this way and so what does that say about us as as an audience that like we keep coming back to stories like this and are entertained by them so it's not just Sinjin who is to blame here for for writing these stories but there's I, blame is probably not the right word right but it's not just he who was part of this cycle but like we as the the passive participants in reading these stories are also contributing to something and again I doesn't I don't think she like gets I, I hope that wasn't her intention because I, I find sort of ah the audience is the real villain. I'm not thing, saying to that it's totally it's, unpersuasive. No, I don't think she's trying to say that readers are are villains in this case. But she, I think like again, you know, she's failing to to fully like come out and say anything directly. But I feel like there's meant to be this thread of. I guess it's hard. It's still hard for me to take that seriously because I don't experience any. I. When she's sort of just like listing off the dozens of women this guy's killed, I don't find that to be an attractive, like that. I don't find that to be seductive in the way that she's describing um, 
the way that I know that violence in fiction can be seductive, right? I mean, like, I know it can be, but th- there was something about how matter-of-factly that was presented that, um, I don't know. I, I don't know. I just, the sort of, like, the audience is implicated to, I just always find to be sort of a facile <laughs> thing. You know what I mean? It just seems so, like, cheesy. Um, but But I'm probably encouraged in that reaction by the fact that I just, you know, that, that I guess that stuff just didn't hit me in the same way. I mean, I kind of wish it did because I the way that you reacted to that story is um, interesting and and you know uh, persuasive. I, but I just didn't, and so it's still hard for me to. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Yeah, never mind. I mean, I I see what you're saying, and I agree that this idea that the audience is just as bad is is very hard to actually successfully follow through on and that's the real flaw of this book right that she just doesn't get past these very facile um examinations of the world like well i i don't think that's entirely true i just think that her more interesting observations were not the ones that are sort of the stated thesis of the book. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there are a lot of really great observations about human relationships and the way that people relate to one another. And, um, you know, especially in that last third. And I mean, honestly, even the two Fox fairy tales at the end, I, I were my, probably my favorite explicit fairy tales of the whole book because they were about people basically, or anthropomorphized animals trying to relate to each other and butting up against these weird limitations. I mean, that, that to me was, um, touching and and effective, and every time that was part of the uh, every time that was part of the story, including when it, that in in turn was suffused by violence, um, I found to be extremely powerful and effective. And I and I I think there were there were a lot of really great human observations made there. Um, but the books but the book sets up a very explicit argument, um, or or not argument really, but explicit topic I should say about. Um, violence against women and it felt like she maybe got a little bit too excited about deconstructing these fairy tales and didn't necessarily engage with it in the in with the what i think considerable depth she did in engaging with a lot of the the um less uh outrageous elements like i i do think there was a lot of really expert um you know observation and and portraits of life uh i just don't know it just felt like there was supposed to be some really concrete theme or argument presented and i that that was that was what didn't didn't land for me no i i agree and and i i think we're just going to keep having this yeah, the yeah, same yeah. conversation which <laughs> yeah. i mean that's fine but sure maybe no we you're can right move we, should, on we to, should move on for sure do, are there any other passages in the book that you wanted to I actually wrote down fairly I didn't really take note of a lot of passages in this book not because there weren't good passages but I think I spent so much of my mental energy trying to figure out how I was reacting to the book that it I had fewer sort of visceral immediate reactions that I was compelled to write down right because I think I was overthinking so many of my reactions which probably has led to a very overthought uh, set of reactions on this podcast. So I apologize for what is inevitably a, uh, a tortured and overthought set of reflections. 
So no, the answer is no. Okay, fair yeah. enough. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's okay. So as usual, uh, I I do want to also mention that there was a lot of good discussion on the Idol forums about this book, as there always is. We have a dedicated forum for the Idol Book Club that has uh, a thread for every book that we discuss, which becomes a thread for uh, the corresponding episode once the podcast is released. You can find that by going to idlethumbs.net, clicking the forum link in the top right, and there's a whole forum called the Idol Book Club on there. And I'm always extremely impressed by the quality of discussion. It's a really, really, really good community. Um, and I'm really glad that they're there hanging out, talking about the books that we read. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess that's it for mm-hmm. uh, this month's discussion of Mr. Fox by Helen Oyeyemi. Do you want to remind everyone what we're reading next month? I do. We are next month reading... The Sympathizer by Viet Thanh Nguyen, and I am excited about it. You've already started reading this book, and yes. you like it a lot so oh, far. Oh, I love it very much. Okay, so I'm excited. Yeah, I won't talk. I guess I can't talk about anything about it right now, so no. stay tuned for the July episode to find out yep. our thoughts. This is, this book is set during the Vietnam War, right? In, no, um, after. It's set, okay, at, okay. At the end, okay, following okay. the end of the Vietnam War. All right. Well, as I understand it, not having read any of it yet, uh it it has a very sort of satirical mm-hmm. tone to it and is only heard good things. Yeah. And I'm excited to read yep. it. So mm-hmm. it's, again, it's called The Sympathizer. And it's out now in paperback, which is... We, we've wanted to read this one actually for a few months and we wanted to wait until it's out in paperback. And now it is. And it also just won the Pulitzer. And, oh man, you're right. And a bunch of other awards so this is definitely a, a book that is a current yeah fascination the, yeah. and deservedly so too so that that'll be our july book and then for august for the episode that will release at the beginning of august we will be reading alice monroe uh, runaway which for those of you who are not familiar with alice monroe she is a canadian short story writer um runaway is one of her more recent short story collections um and i love her (laughs) sarah is completely obsessed with alice monroe yep um so i have been patiently waiting for an episode (laughs) where we could read an alice monroe short story collection and now that's happening um so i've read runaway before and like all of her work it is really amazing, so I'm I'm really looking forward to going back and reading it again. And this, I guess, will be the first short story collection that you and I read on this podcast. Do you have any advice for people who don't usually read short story collections? Um, not really. I mean, I don't normally read short story collections. I've read, uh, I have read a different Alice Munro short story collection, which I which I enjoyed quite a bit. Um, as far as advice, I don't really know. Mm-hmm. I mean, read it, I guess. Yeah. 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 I mean, we can talk about this more in August when we actually discuss the book. But um, I think a lot of people, including myself, for, for quite a long time have this m- misperception that short stories are inferior to novels in, in some way. And I would really encourage people, if you're still thinking in, in that mode, to at least give Alice Monroe 
a chance because even though her stories end after 30 pages, I think that this woman can do more in just five pages of writing than most authors can hope to do in like 400 pages. So, (laughs) um, yeah, I'm really excited. All right. Cool. So again, for this coming month, it is The Sympathizer by Viet Thanh Nguyen. And following that, it is Runaway by Alice Munro. You can, again, discuss these books and uh, all the other books we've read on the forums at idlethumbs.net. Hit the forum link and go to the Idle Book Club forum. You can send us mail at books at idlethumbs.net. That's always really fun to read. Um, We're on Twitter at Idle Book Club. Our website is idlebookclub.com and, and you know, there you can find links to subscribing to us on iTunes and everywhere else. If you like the show, please consider telling a friend or reviewing us on iTunes. That really means a lot. We, as you probably know, we're a small show. Um, really, the, the main way that anyone finds out about us is just from friends' recommendations. That's about it. So those are, are very helpful. And thank you for listening. Oh, and one last note. Uh, in addition to having this monthly book podcast, we're at least I am also participating in a Harry Potter, oh, yeah. uh, both reread and rewatch um, with a couple other people who are part of the Idle Thumbs podcast network. So that will be starting up soon. The idea being that every month we will read one of the Harry Potter books and then watch the corresponding movie and those episodes will be released hopefully bi-weekly. Um, we are just about to release the first episode, which deals with the first book. So stay on the lookout for that. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, I hope. Yep. And I am not on that podcast, but I know that you can be reached at Harry Potter at idlethumbs.net. And there's nowhere to go and sign up to um, subscribe to that show yet, but that will, I'm sure by the next episode of this show, that will be true, and Mm -hmm. we will give you that information then. Yeah, so stay tuned. All right. Well, thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next month. Bye. Bye. Thanks for stopping by.